Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. I've always been fascinated by the human voice, which experts say is as unique to each person as their fingerprint. In these podcasts, we celebrate the human voice in all its wonderfully diverse forms, young and old, different accents and cultural contexts. Writers sometimes struggle to find their own voice, but you can kind of tell when someone is speaking from a place of authenticity and integrity. That's when I most love listening to voices. Thank you for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. You may be looking at a person unconsciously as if they're broken because they have a disease and not recognizing that the strength in them may have been mobilized by this disease in ways that it could never have been mobilized before. A doctor whose own long bout with illness taught her how to help patients activate a powerful will to live. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. the home of physician Rachel Naomi Remen. You ascend a magnificent California mountain that challenges drivers to stay focused on the winding road and not get too distracted by the foggy, magical panorama below of San Francisco Bay. On arriving, I was greeted by a tall, slender, white-haired woman known as Dr. Rachel. I asked whether the enchanting scene, where she's lived for nearly two decades, was something she had come to take for granted. After 50 years of chronic illness, she replied in a soft voice, I don't take anything for granted. A hard-earned perspective, it is a philosophy she strives to impart to her cancer patients facing their own medical trials. I think life is precious to most people. I think most people want to live. Whether they believe they can is something else. You know, is there a moment when someone believes that they're going to be able to live? I think the moment that I believed that I was going to be able to live was when I was probably 43 or 44 years old and noticed that I indeed had done it. <laughs> you had outlived the diagnosis. I had outlived my, my diagnosis, yes. Now in her 60s, Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of California and author of the best-selling book Kitchen Table Wisdom, Stories That Heal. But her life journey took a shocking turn when, as an adolescent, Rachel Remen learned that she had Crohn's disease, a devastating ailment of the intestine and joints which would claim her life by age 40. I've had it since I was 15 years old which is uh, almost 50 years ago. And it was um, a very powerful experience for me, life-changing experience, and it continues to be. I was 14. Um, I lived in New York City, and I, it was a Saturday morning, 
And I was walking up the street um, on Fifth Avenue between 34th and 35th Street. You know, when things happen of enormous significance, often you can remember exactly where you were, what you were doing. And so I was doing what young girls did in the 50s on a Saturday morning. I was shopping with two little friends. And as we walked up uh, the street, one of us saw a little flash of green, and there growing um, right through the New York City sidewalk were two tender little green blades of grass. And, you know, they weren't growing um, through a crack in the sidewalk, David. They were growing right through the cement. And so uh, all of us were astounded uh, by this. I thought I had understood a lot about power. I was, of course, a New Yorker, even though I was only 14. So I knew a lot about you know, the power of politics and money and knowledge, certainly, from my very medical family. But I had never witnessed this other kind of power before. I'd never seen it before. And so that image of the little blades of grass growing through the cement um, stuck with me for years because uh, it struck me as a kind of a miracle. A miracle. And then about a year later, when I was diagnosed with this incurable illness, right, um, a huge group of uh, white-coated people, experts of various sorts, you know, gathered around me and my family, and they gave us um, the facts. And the facts were that this was a disease that I had that Nobody knew how to cure. No one even knew how to treat it. No one knew what caused it. That I would have multiple surgeries on my intestine. Um, and I could expect to be dead by the time I was 40. And of course, um, this was not my dream of my future. As a 15-year-old, I had a very different, uh, something very different in mind. And so what followed were years of despair uh, and darkness, really. And my family is very medical. There are nine doctors and three nurses in two generations of the family. So nobody questioned what the experts had told us. So it was handed down to you as a death sentence? Yes, with all the power of science behind it. And all the authority of white coats. Exactly. And, you know, if only one of the people, one of these physicians, had said to me, you know, that it's possible that there is something in you that science can't measure, something that might be able to break through this obstacle and find a way to live, something that might be able to make a life, a good life, even though it wasn't going to be an easy life. It would have made a huge difference to me. You know, I made many decisions based on these facts, decisions about marriage, decisions about having children, things, uh, not wanting to start things that I knew I wasn't going to be able to finish. But nobody did. And now that I've been a physician myself these many years, I I know why. I think they didn't tell me because they didn't know. Will to live is not under W in Essentials of Internal Medicine. It's something that you learn by observing life, by being open to seeing how life works itself out.
The sad part of all of this is that the so-called facts are still true. Uh, there still is no known cure for this disease. Nobody knows what causes it to this day. And I have had eight major surgeries on my intestine. I no longer have an intestine, essentially. But I haven't been dead these 24 years. And so whenever there's a difference between the facts and the story, you're in the presence of mystery. And one of the more common manifestations of mystery in life is the will to live. Were you conscious of uh, an unusually strong will to live? It's hmm. a wonderful question. I was conscious of being terribly, terribly spoiled. I was the only child of uh, elderly intellectual parents. Um, I was seen as a kind of a miracle, and it's interesting because I was born prematurely. Hmm. So my encounter with the will to live actually goes back to my birth. So you're really into um, defying barriers. Yeah. Well, it seems to have been what has come up in my life. But I was very spoiled. I was used to having things my way. And so when confronted by something that thwarted me, which is, I think, how I would have described this as a teenager, I was both very stubborn and very angry. And, of course, anger is one of the ways the will to live manifests. Uh, in the beginning. Rachel Naomi Remen has devoted much of her medical career to helping patients rouse the will to live. As co-founder of the renowned Commonweal Cancer Help Program in Bolinas, California, she is focused on the role of the human spirit in promoting health and recovery from illness. The will to live is evoked by woundedness. If I stick a pin in you, right, that power of healing in you is awakened immediately, right? Well, people who have had cancer drop into the middle of their lives have been awakened in a far more profound way than most of us. And so the will to live is very active in people with a diagnosis like this, and they may not be aware of it because it's not the wish to live, the conscious thing. It's something cellular that is responding. Something much more mysterious than I want to live to see my child graduated from school. Now the wish to live may connect to the will to live and stimulate it, but sometimes it doesn't for reasons that are completely unknown. You know, there are factors in life. There are a diagnosis. In fact, life itself is an encounter with mystery and the unknown. For example, we don't know when we will die. No, nor do we know. Uh, there's a wonderful concept that has come into our culture, which is often, um, you know, it's often trivialized, that there may be a deep meaning to the events of our lives and that we may be fulfilling, fulfilling or playing out or living out some unknown purpose through our responses to these events. And by that, do you mean that we may be here on a kind of invisible curriculum, learning some mm -hmm. lessons that we don't 
recognize we've come here to learn? That's simple. It's too simple for me. I mean, having lived in this milieu of life and death for all these years, um, it's a possibility. How do you see it? I just think there may be an unknown purpose in life. I think our choices may serve unknown purposes. Uh, I think there may be something that underlies the, um, the obviousness of life. I, I see such a thing as the death of a child, which is possibly the most difficult thing that ever happens to anyone. Uh, it feels unnatural to everyone, right? Um, and I see the impact that it can have on people who actually know the family, people who are related to the child, friends of people who are related to the child, people who read this in a newspaper. Um, it has such an enormous impact, an awakening effect on people who say to themselves, oh, maybe I'm not spending my time in the way I should be spending my time. And you wonder about these things. I don't know what that means. But I see it happen, and I wonder about it. It's not about knowing a curriculum, that life is a curriculum. It's about wondering what life is. And I think this is very important. I think that the questions that we carry with us through life are much, help us to live much better than the answers that we think we have found. Because a real question, like, is there an unknown purpose to life, has many different answers. As we go through life, the answers will get deeper and wiser as we get deeper and wiser. Whereas, you know, I'm here on this curriculum and this was given to me, so now I've got to learn the lesson of it. When I learn the lesson of it, the disease will go away. I can a little, little too neat. Much too, I can always hear God giggling. Because life is far more profound and mysterious and quite wonderful than something like that. Something like that suggests we're in control of things. And you know, the American culture is a culture of mastery and control. We would like to be able to say, ah, this is what it is, this is what I do, and that's how I'm going to take charge of this. But in reality, life isn't about mastery. Life is full of mystery. And in order to live well, sometimes you need to be able to move freely with that. Dr. Rachel Remen sees herself as a medical reformer for her, medicine is more than a profession, more than a way of serving patients. It's a spiritual path. She spreads this belief on her busy schedule of lectures at hospitals and medical schools throughout the United States. Dr. Remen encourages medical colleagues, as well as patients, to look deeply at the secrets of health and illness, at the wondrous puzzle of life and death. By wondering about stuff like this, we become far more alive, far less cynical. Mystery heals us, you know. It heals cynicism, it heals loneliness, it, le it heals hopelessness. In the presence of mystery, you know, life is filled with more possibility.
When I was diagnosed, Crohn's disease is a statement of mystery. Rather than accompanying me as I lived out my own story and found out what it was, right? My doctors felt a need to tell me what my story was based on their expertise because they couldn't tolerate the mystery in the diagnosis of Crohn's disease. I think that being able to tolerate mystery and to even welcome it is what allows people to live extremely well, no matter how long they're going to live. So in the case of somebody who is dealing with cancer, who doesn't know how long they will live because nobody knows that for sure regardless of medical science's best guess to to live with mystery means what to be awake because um the unknown may speak to you at any time in life it means not to allow science to define life for us and in the case of someone facing a health crisis, that means not to allow a doctor's diagnosis to define life? Absolutely not. Because it won't define their lives. You know, whenever, if science defines life in its own way, but um, life is larger than science. There are things that happen that can't be measured, that can't be replicated even, but they can be observed and witnessed. Um, in fact, most of the things that make life worthwhile can't be measured. Such as? Love. Love. Service. Kindness. All these things, harmlessness, that give us um, the quality of our lives. In some cases, this larger way of seeing can induce a profound change in a patient's perspective. It is a transformation Dr. Remen has witnessed many times, a transformation not just of a person's physical health, but of their entire frame of reference as well. What it often looks like is a shift in values. You know, values that have um, been lifelong, that have been limiting, a shift in beliefs about oneself, about what's important, which enable one to live more passionately and fully and completely and well than ever before, even though your illness may be chronic. And there are so many stories about stuff like this. The one that I uh, that comes to mind right now is uh, this woman um, whose husband referred to her always as uh, crazy clean. And uh, she's actually an obsessive-compulsive personality, which is a diagnosis that the psychiatrists use. It's usually thought of as chronic. Um, she had been treated and uh, had, had not responded to medication. And everything in her house was perfectly organized. Every drawer, every piece of metal shone. Um, her kids once told me that her mom, this little girl told me, her mom could spot a Cheerio on the kitchen floor from the other room and wouldn't rest until she knew who had done this and had the offender pick it up. The offender? Okay. Yeah. But cancer changed that for her. She became so sick that she could barely get from her bed to the bathroom from, with her chemotherapy. And the whole neighborhood um, invaded her perfectly organized kitchen 
and cooked and fed her family. And, um, you know, kind neighborly hands, uh, un unfamiliar with the household rules, would fold her laundry and wash it and fold it and put it away in all the wrong places. And her perfect walls were covered with pictures drawn by the classmates of her, of her kids, each one with a prayer for her recovery, each one stuck on the wall with a piece of scotch tape. <laughs> and in the midst of all of this, her husband brought a kitten home, <laughs> which shed everywhere. But in the night when she was on chemo and she was so sick she couldn't sleep, it was this kitten's warmth and comfort that got her through the, the worst of it. And her response, of course, is um, that she wouldn't want to be the way she was before she had cancer. She she, she drove her family crazy. Um, she resented them because they messed up the order of things. And then she said this wonderful thing, you know, uh, Rachel, there's so much more important in life than a perfectly clean kitchen floor. And it's that kind of a shift, David, that I think is the will to live in people. Uh, that kind of an expansion of our ability to engage with life. In all these years, watching people um, struggle with the possibility of death. In the end, the important thing is rarely, you know, power or possessions or anything like this. Most often, um, the important thing is love. And people are able to love uh, more fearlessly. Uh, they are become able to receive the love of others. They recognize that they have been loved for years without knowing. There's a shift, and the shift is very dramatic in many people. People take risks that they would never have taken before, and these risks allow them to live far more fully than before they were diagnosed. They take those risks out of desperation? No. They take those risks because the thing that stopped them from taking those risks no longer matters to them. And what was it that stopped? Whatever it was, what other people think, you know, what other people think, maybe failing. People don't take risks or they're afraid to fail. People stop being afraid to fail. They become afraid not to live. And so they, they reach out for life. It's very, very inspiring and very dramatic. Now, to me, this is what the will to live looks like in my practice, in my experience of people, um, it doesn't always look like someone's cancer going away. In fact, that isn't the way it looks like, what it looks like most of the time. It always looks to me as if someone has found a way to be, to be themselves. It is striking that in the experience of Dr. Rachel Remen, the course of a patient's illness does not always indicate the person's emotional and spiritual state. Some people may endure a prolonged siege of sickness and may not improve physically, but can nevertheless experience a genuine breakthrough 
in attitude, in psychological outlook, in peace of mind. I'm referring to being present in your life, moment to moment. Um, taking joy in the blessings that are in your life, the blessings that most people don't even notice. One woman told me this wonderful thing about uh, getting out of bed for the first time after major, major surgery. She'd been in bed for six weeks and somehow putting a robe on and getting down the stairs and going to the kitchen and standing in her own kitchen for the first time in weeks. And someone who had been helping her take care of her, you know, someone had been taking care of her, had um, put a brand new bottle of dish soap next to the sink. And she looked at this bottle of soap. It was full. It was like a light aqua color. It had a beautiful label on it. And felt so thankful for the abundance of life. A full bottle of dish soap. Something that we all go past. And you know, many people, after recovering from an illness like cancer, will say that they wish they could hold on to something like this. That there was a great wisdom in being able to recognize how much we have that we don't notice. I think we all have moments when we become possessed of the awareness of the tremendous blessing of just being alive and all the wonderful gifts that we've received. And then something comes along like a tidal wave and sort of sweeps us into a place where we somehow forget our appreciation of the gifts of life. And that something is rarely an illness. That something is usually our attachment to something, like our ideas of success or um, something that we, we wish to have from other people that we don't have. Um, it's usually we become unconscious because we have become one-pointed in our focus. If I don't have this, life isn't worth living. Or this is the only thing that's important to me. And you know, when people become ill, that changes radically. People's values change. And the purpose of life is not to be a doctor or a lawyer or wealthy or famous or even successful, all these things that we struggle for in America. The purpose of life is to grow in wisdom and to learn how to love better. And you can do that as a mom, you can do it as a lawyer, you can do it as a file clerk, you can do it as someone who works in McDonald's, or you can't do it in any of those roles. It has nothing to do with roles. It has to do with um, our eyes. This wonderful saying, you know, the voyage of discovery lies not in seeking new vistas, but in having new eyes. Right? Um, I think chronic illness, life-threatening illness, is often an opportunity to grow in wisdom and learn how to love better. That doesn't mean anyone would wish it to happen to them. But uh, as a young man with diabetes once told me in the years I was a pediatrician, I've paid for my ticket, I might as well take the trip, which sums it up in a funny way. Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen, author of Kitchen Table Wisdom, Stories That Heal, 
and My Grandfather's Blessings, Stories of Strength, Refuge, and Belonging. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with the Network Incorporated. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Francis McGovern and Thomas Royal. Special thanks to Dr. Leo Stolbach. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1 800 5 Listen. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment on The Will to Live with Dr. Rachel Naomi Raman is Humankind program number 69. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.